A reading from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and also chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did, you, God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So, the sewed le- so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The word of the Lord. A reading from the epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, starting with verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who is the pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for in the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, starting with verse 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. 
And this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good to see you all this morning. Glad that you're here. Uh, Hope that you are lenting well. That's a thing. Um, And uh, I did want to just draw your attention as we're in this season of Lent, like a lot of people during this time in the church, uh, take some extra time to set apart for prayer and for scripture reading and things like that. A lot of times like people fast something for Lent, but then you want to like not just give something up, but like add something in its place, you know? And so uh, one of the ways that you can do this is we've actually put out a devotional for the season of Lent. Um, And this is something that was compiled by our parent church and they were like, have at it and go for it. And I looked at it, it's just really wonderful. It really fits with kind of who we are. Um, And it's really simple. It's like a scripture reading in the morning and then like a prayer and a quote in the evening. And so I just encourage you to pick that up. It's, It's all digital. We don't have print copies or anything. It's all digital, so if you go to our website, actually through our social media, I think it's the best way to get to it, um, then you can uh, download that. If you have any questions with that, then let me know, but I encourage you to help us in these rhythms that we get into the, as they form us and shape us in these seasons. Um, a few of us gathered this past Wednesday to mark the beginning of the season of Lent, Ash Wednesday, the season of repentance and fasting and humility. And one of the things we talked about on Wednesday was this idea of dependence, which is so weird for us as Americans in the 21st century. We are dependent creatures, and it's hard for us to remember that, but we need God. In fact, Scripture tells us uh, in the beginning that human beings are created out of dust, Right? And that's why we get the ashes on our forehead. It's a reminder that we came from dust and we're going back to dust. But then it also says that God breathed his life into the dust. We are dust and the breath of God. Sometimes we're lulled into believing that we're independent, that we are all we need. And it's in that moment that we need to remember that without God, we are only dust. Sometimes we're fully aware of our dustiness. Have you ever had those moments? You're going, yeah, I realize I'm pretty dusty today. But we think we'll never be more than that. That we're just here passing time, that we're sitting here stirred up once in a while, but nothing spectacular. It's in those moments that we need to realize we are the breath of God, right? The purpose for fasting is it takes away some of the comforts that lull us into thinking we're independent, okay? These kind of creature comforts. And we can go along with these, these things and, and just in the normal course of life, thinking that we're independent, thinking that we have life pretty well figured out. And this is really a false life that we've carved out for ourselves. And we think we can do it all by ourselves. Taking some of that away, even those little, little things, kind of messes with us. It's like the book that was really popular in the 90s, Who Moved My Cheese? I don't know if you remember that one or not. Um, but something changes in our world and we freak out a little bit, right? (laughs) Like, what happened to that thing? I was used to that thing. Like, I was supposed to have chocolate now, and I'm not having chocolate. I was supposed to be scrolling my phone. That would be so nice if I could just scroll my phone a little bit. There's nothing of substance that I can see, but it would be nice to just do it, right? 
When those things are changed and we say, no, I'm not doing that, we get a glimpse, just a small glimpse of our fight or flight response, if you're familiar with that idea. Um, it engages us in a way to go, hey, when I feel that ache, when I feel like I don't have that thing that makes me comfortable, where am I gonna turn now? What am I gonna look to? So there's this sense of we go, oh, I really want, my, my pastor does this. He gives up chocolate for Lent, among other things, but he has a drawer in his house that's just chocolate in it, that he just, he just loves chocolate, right? And so one of the things that, that he does during Lent is he likes to pull out the chocolate that he's given up and smell it. <laughs> and then he says, God, I want this chocolate but I want you more, <laughs> right? It's realizing that ache, that longing is supposed to go somewhere, right? We are dependent not on those things, but on God. Sin is what happens when we try to take control of our lives away from God, when we usurp his authority, when we forget our dependence or we defy it outright and turn to other things. As a parent, those of you who are parents, and those of you who aren't parents, I'm sorry that all my analogies are parenting, but that's just where I'm at right now in my life. As a parent, one of the most frustrating things is when my daughter um, thinks she doesn't need my help for something that she does need my help for, okay? Um, no, honey, you can't make mac and cheese by yourself. I'm sorry, you can't. There's lots of reasons for that. No, you can't paint your bedroom, Lucy. You can't do that. Honey, I know you want to help, but you can't put gas in the car. All right, that's not for you to do. I can handle outright defiance, okay? Usually if she's just defying me, then it's like, all right, let's take a minute and calm down and figure out where this is coming from. But the refusal to consult me or involve me in things that are outside of her scope, that's maddening, right? maddening to me. So my answer to her is usually not yet, <laughs> not yet, okay? She needs to see the big picture and to learn I have her best interest in mind here, okay? Now, Lucy will one day grow into independence from me. And I'm thankful for that. But we are always dependent on God. That's not something we outgrow, okay? But God does invite us to grow into things over time. He does. And his answer is often, not yet, or not in this way. I have a different way. I need you, you don't see the big picture. You're not wise like I am. You don't see the whole thing. So follow me in this as I lead you in the right way. It's an invitation to trust. This is what's going on in the Garden of Eden story that we read this morning. Adam and Eve, the first human beings, have been put in the garden to keep it and to steward it. And they're told that they can eat freely of any tree in the garden except for one not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they eat that, they will eat of that, they will die. Now, at first glance, if you're new to the Bible, like this seems like an arbitrary rule, right? Like why would God create this like, I mean, I picture like a, a whole thing, like a landmine or something. Like here's one thing that you're supposed to stay away from. It almost feels like it's a random test. But God knows where they are. He knows they're not ready yet to have full knowledge of good and evil. They're not ready to know all of that. God's desire is for all of us that human beings will one day fully know good from evil, but only as they follow him, right? as they follow his lead. God has not given them a test to pass or fail. That's not what's going on here. If you've ever heard that preached before, that's not what's going on. God's job is to know all things, and our job is to follow him and to trust him. 
So what happens is the serpent enters the garden and starts to like poke at God's commandment to Adam and Eve, right? Did God really say that? Like, and then the serpent says, you will not die if you do this. Because God's trying to trick you because he knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him. You'll know good from evil, okay? This is a lie in the sense that it's a twisting of the truth, right? The serpent doesn't give them the whole picture. The serpent takes the truth and twists it. They're tempted. So Adam and Eve are tempted not just to do a naughty thing, okay? That's not really what this is. They are tempted to do things out of God's order, right? To not trust him and to think that they can make that decision on their own. So therefore, they're defying God's authority in their life. So in that moment, they're forced to grapple with a reality for which they are not yet ready. The result is that they realize that they're naked. So they make this decision, they, they go against God's authority, and then they feel shame. Something within them doesn't feel right. They're not whole in the same way that they were before, and they feel the need to cover themselves or to hide themselves. We see in the scripture then that their decision begins to unravel things. So the decision in the garden doesn't just affect them, it actually affects all of creation. So we see this ripple effect that goes out and like the next chapter later, we see that their kids get in a fight and one of them kills the other kid. So it starts as this personal sin and then it becomes this interpersonal sin. And then a few chapters later, we see this whole society that turns away from God. So sin just keeps growing and growing and growing. And the pattern continues. And then it plays out throughout the rest of the Old Testament because God chooses the children of Israel to be part of the rescue operation in the world. And yet the children of Israel also choose to go against him. So this plan continues to unravel over and over again. And this is what Paul is writing about in our epistle text. Paul's writing in Romans 5, and I hope you picked this up today, is one of the most dense stuff in the entire Bible. Okay, it's a really hard passage. So today we don't have time to go into the debates on how to read Romans or on atonement theology. You all can say amen to that. We're not gonna be able to go into all of that today. But the short version is that Paul is saying that, um, Paul is saying is that the usurping or the rebellion or the sin that entered the world through the choice of human beings has been undone in Jesus Christ. Okay, so this transgression that's happened, this usurping God's authority has been undone in Jesus Christ. But he says more than that. It's not just undone, it's more than undone, okay? So it's not just that it was like fixed, it was completely remade, right? It's completely overwhelmed in a different way. So we have this sign out front that sits out here that has the sacrament logo on it. The vinyl part is new because we have a new logo now, but the frame part of it is like really old like years old, and you all know that. The sign has seen better days, right? Um, It has been the same frame for many years. I have picture of that frame, pictures of that frame covered in snow at different times. It has blown over many, many times, and we've had to sometimes chase it down streets in order to get it back to where it needs to go. So we're trying to find some sort of glue or fastener or something to like fix it right now because it's pretty much broken, but... As we're looking for a new space for our church, we're really just trying right now for a temporary fix just to get us through until we figure out where the new place is gonna be and what our situation's gonna be. But my hope is that one day we will meet in a place where we will need to commission a new sign that is made of better stuff, 
okay? <laughs> like it's not temporary, it's completely remade, it's different. It'll be a permanent sign, it'll sit out, okay, this is the dream, right? It'll sit out all week long and will withstand all of the elements, right? I have very humble dreams, but they're dreams, okay? If you read the Romans text, it's really fascinating because verse 12 begins with, as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. Now, at that point, there's either an ellipsis, three dots, or a dash there in the text. And it's this really interesting point of the phrase, if, if you see it. It's like he starts with this balance picture and he said, he's gonna say, just as sin came through the world through Adam, so redemption comes in Jesus Christ. But then he stops and he like ellipses is, or however you say that, or dashes or whatever it is. And he stops there and he's like, no, it's more than that. It's not just a balanced picture. It's not just that sin came in the world through Adam and then it was fixed in Jesus. No, it's way more than that. It's something beyond that. God did something more. God didn't just say, okay, I'm gonna fix this brokenness, put it back together. He says, I'm gonna put it back together in a way that it's a better stuff. Somehow in Jesus, the world has been made out of tougher stuff. His kingdom is greater. It's greater than our trespasses. It's greater than all the sins and all the stuff that we've ever done. The world's a different place. Adam's trespass and God's gift are not equal and opposite things. God's gift is way, way better and bigger. God has given a free gift and it is greater than the usurping done by Adam and Eve. The passage there says, therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Our Matthew text then today, our gospel reading, gives us in story form how this plays out in the life of Jesus. Where human beings were unfaithful, Jesus, the full human being and fully God, was faithful. Where we try to take control and do not trust God, Jesus trusts the Father completely. Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And what this is supposed to, in Matthew's gospel, it's supposed to show us that Jesus is reliving the story of Israel. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40, for 40 years, right? So he's kind of reenacting that and he's showing where Israel messed up and didn't trust God, Jesus does trust God, even in the midst of temptation. And he's in the desert and he's been fasting for 40 days and he's hungry. That's just obvious, right? Like you would be after 40 days. Jesus in the desert, he's fasting, he's fully dependent on the Father. But it's also right when his hunger is mentioned, that's the point when the tempter comes. So think about this. In 12-step groups, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, different groups like this, there's an acronym for the word HALT, HALT, H-A-L-T. And it stands for hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. The idea is that temptation is more likely to come to you, whether it's for that drink or whatever it is, when you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. It's most likely to come to you in one of those moments. It's a vulnerable point. What happens is that in each of those instances, our basic needs are revealed. 
what we trust in in those moments. When we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, it's a question of what do we trust in? When we get to a place of need, when we're struggling, that's when we start to hear other counterfeit voices, other lies. Voices that call us to forget our dependence on God, to forget our identity and our mission and what God says about us and to choose a counterfeit, to choose something else. Jesus is tempted here by the devil. Well, why is Jesus tempted? Well, it's not that Jesus needs to prove anything. It's not that God, the father is testing Jesus to see if he'll like pass this test. It also wasn't because Jesus was disobedient. This wasn't a punishment for him to go into the desert. Jesus was tempted in order to show us how the enemy works. Through Jesus's birth and life and death and resurrection, Jesus shows us how false those voices really are. And in exposing those voices, he destroys them. He takes their power away. So there's three temptations here. The first one is, the first temptation is you can meet your needs yourself. You can meet your needs yourself, okay? The tempter comes to Jesus in a similar way. He came to Eve in the garden. The serpent came to Eve to cause her to doubt her dependence on God, to doubt that God will really give her everything that she needs. So Eve and Adam accept the fruit. Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually says that Eve sinned at the moment she believed she could even answer the serpent's question because the serpent attempts to put her on level footing with God, right? The serpent's question presumes that she and God are equals. They're kind of on the same level, but she's not. She's a dependent creature and Adam is a dependent creature. Adam and Eve are dependent on God. And that's a fact that we all often resist. So the punishment that came upon them was this, Genesis 3:19. This is outside the scope of our passage, but it says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground for out of it, you were taken. So because of this curse, because of this decision that's happened, the human condition now is that we work for food, okay? It's delayed gratification. There's pain in our work for food. The gathering of food comes from the hand of God. So God created the world in such a way that it produces food and it is received through toil and through labor. Now we often kind of forget that because a lot of us drive to the grocery store and that can feel laborsome sometimes, but not really, <laughs> okay? But that's how, how uh, food comes from. We receive the food that God has given to sustain us. Now, Jesus in this temptation, he is the only human being who could shortcut that process. He could step in and go, no, I'm not gonna toil from the ground like the curse says. I'm gonna just turn these stones and turn them into bread, right? but he doesn't choose to do that. The temptation here that the devil tempts them with is for him to not fully identify with us, with the human condition, but to satisfy his own need for bread independently of the father and then without his mission of being fully present with us. But Jesus refuses to do so. And he anticipates the moment where he will lay down his life freely. This is so important to remember that Jesus could have shortcutted all the pain. He could have shortcutted all that stuff. He's God, right? But he doesn't. He doesn't shortcut this and he doesn't shortcut the cross. He laid his life down for us. 
So how does Christ beat the tempter in ways that Eve cannot? Because Christ doesn't wanna shortcut the process. He doesn't wanna be independent from God. He realizes that this gift of bread will be there for him and he refuses to grasp it impulsively. He trusts the father's mission for him. For me, as I was wrestling with this temptation, the question was, how often am I impatient and guilty was my response, right? How often do we follow the messages that tell us to just get all we can, to grasp, to consume, to look out for number one? How often are we distracted from the way of Jesus because the simple rumblings in our stomach, right? Then Jesus quotes the Old Testament and he says, man does not live by bread alone. You are not the sum of your desires and cravings. You're not. You are more than that. It doesn't mean that your desires and cravings are wrong, right? We all have legitimate needs in our life, but they're not what defines you. You are defined by God's calling and God's grace, God's creation, God's love. That's what defines you. And God knows our needs. He knows that our needs are legitimate. But our needs in and of themselves are not the goal. God's formation of us and the world and our calling to be fully who he's created us to be, that's the goal. So the first temptation is that you can meet your needs yourself. That's the lie that we hear. The second temptation is you can make God do what you want him to do. That's the temptation here. The devil takes Jesus to the holy city. Look at the contrast here. Jesus is taken from the desert to the holy city, Jerusalem. Those are two very different places. And this is written for us to think about Israel's story, okay? After their 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness, they entered into the promised land. They enter into their land, Jerusalem, right? And once they enter the promised land, not all was rosy. In fact, we're, we're led in the story through this journey and they're like, they're finally entering the promised land. And we're like, all is right. And this is the fulfillment of the story. But that's actually the place of their greatest rebellion. <laughs> it's the place where they choose the most counterfeits and to go against their dependence on God. So this small desert wandering minority people group go from desert to mountain and quickly they abandon the path that God has laid out for them. And the text tells us in the Old Testament that they want a king which is kind of a sign for the fact they don't wanna be ruled by God anymore. They wanna be ruled by an earthly king. They start to own slaves, which is so awful because, I mean, it's of course awful because it's awful, but it's also, if you look back, the fact, what was their story? They were slaves who were set free. And then as soon as they get into this new city, they wanna own slaves, right? It's this horrible pattern that begins to happen. They accumulate massive wealth. They become violent. And as I was thinking about this temptation, I was thinking about like, is this often true for us? The sight of our greatest victory is also oftentimes our greatest failure. We often say this phrase, their greatest strength is their greatest weakness. Have you ever heard that before? Maybe you're really strong in the fact that you're able to change your mind quickly and to read a situation without much time but your weakness is that you're flighty and inconsistent. <laughs> you thought about that? Maybe you're strong in your empathy for other people, your ability to step into their shoes and feel what they feel, but you're weak in that you care too much about what they think, right? You're fragile. Maybe you're strong in a particular gifting or skill or talent, but that often sets you up for pride 
doesn't it? Even when we're strong, we're weak. Now, we can let that be maddening for us, or we can go, I can just never get anything right, because even in my strength, I'm weak. Think about this, even our devotion to God is fragile. So our prayer often has selfish motives to it. If you ever think you're gonna arrive someday, well, maybe you will, but if you ever think you're gonna arrive someday where you pray and you go, all of my prayers are completely pure, right? And I have no selfish motives. We all struggle with that, right? That's just part of it. We, we have that. We hope that God will bless us or if we pray for others, that maybe we think God will bless us if we pray for other people. Our fasting sometimes is done in an attempt to manipulate God instead of humbling ourselves. So what do we do? Well, it's tempting to just think, well, I'll just never be good. And everything is tinged with failure. But this weakness is good news because this weakness is a sign of dependence. This is the very place we rest in God's grace. When we recognize where we're weak, that's such a beautiful moment because right at that moment where we go, gosh, I messed up in this way or I'm broken this way, that's where we trust in God's grace. And we say, I can't do it without him. God takes, this is what God does. He takes broken things and makes beautiful things out of them. That's the business he's in, right? Macarius of Egypt, one of the desert fathers, he warns us to think that our devotion is always fragile and is always just the beginning. So here's what he says. This is true prayer, to pray and then to say, that's not prayer. <laughs> to fast and then to say, this is not fasting. What does that mean? Well, we can't trust in ourselves. We cling not to our own faithfulness, not our ability to do good works. We cling to the fact that Jesus was faithful and we're his. Somebody say amen this morning. Sorry, but every once in a while, my, uh, my um, charismatic uh, little boy grew up in the black church comes out. So you have to forgive me. And the devil says, if you are the son of God, he tempts him in this way. He tells him to throw himself off the mountain because the Father will protect him. Jesus is tempted to doubt what his identity as the Son of God means for his vocation. Jesus is tempted to use his relationship with the Father to do something that's not part of the Father's character. The devil says, if that's really who you are, if you're really God's Son, if you have this kind of intimacy with the Father, show it, do it. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Show your intimacy, show your relationship to him, show the power of God. And again, this points us back to Israel's story. Israel doubted the presence of God in the wilderness when they didn't have food and when they didn't have water. So what were they tempted to do? Well, they were tempted to go, we can't see God right now. We don't see him around us. We don't feel his presence. So maybe we'll just throw all our gold in a furnace and kind of make a calf and that's God. God showed up for us. Look at what we did. But that's, we're so tempted to do that. We're tempted when we feel that lack in our lives, when we don't feel God's presence to go, well, maybe he's not really gonna show up. So maybe I gotta do something else. What happens when we're tempted to see places in our lives that are lacking as signs of God's absence? The opportunity we have is to choose to trust God but it's not even our ability to trust. We are dependent. If we're dependent on our own ability to muster up trust, we'd be in trouble. Christ was tempted on our behalf and was faithful on our behalf. And we can hold on to Christ's own confidence 
in the Father. Quickly here, the third temptation. So the first temptation was uh, you can meet your needs by yourself. The second one is you can make God do what you want him to do. And then the third is you don't need the cross. That's the temptation that Jesus has. We talked last week about the topography of scripture, how we have seas in the scripture, which represent evil and uh, God's people are rescued from the seas. We have the desert, which are signs of dependence and trust. We have a mountain, which is a sign of revelation and mission. Last week, we talked about the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus shining in glory, showing us what it means to be human. And as part of the third temptation here, Jesus, or Satan takes Jesus up on a mountain. And it's kind of like a counterfeit mountain. <laughs> it's a counter-revelation, right? What Satan offers Jesus here is an alternative way to live out his destiny as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He asks him, what if you could live out your calling to have the whole world under your lordship, but you could do it without going to the cross, without dying? What if there was a shortcut here where if you just worship me, <laughs> if you just bow down before me, you can have all the things, you can have the ends that you want and they're noble aims, they're noble ends. You're gonna have great lordship. You're gonna be the king over everything. Just shortcut that messy cross business. That's one of the ways we can see this story. The devil first tempts us to meet our physical, tangible needs on our own. The devil then tempts us in our religious, spiritual impulses, put God to the test. And then when all that has failed, he tries to turn even our good, noble aims into perversions. It's good to pray for healing from disease. It's good. It's good to wanna to be in community and have relationships. It's good maybe to want to get married or want to have kids or want to have a fulfilling job. For Jesus, it was good and right for him to be Lord over everything. And yet the temptation is to turn that noble thing and make it all about us. To make it our kingdoms, our cities. Even our noble desires to help other people can quickly become about us. This is why consistent trust in God is so necessary. The challenge for Lent is trust. We will constantly be tempted to turn to other things instead of our dependence on God. What does this mean for us? Well, first of all, there are some of us today who feel significant lack in our lives right now. Loneliness, anxiety, grief, financial lack. All of these needs I want you to hear are completely legitimate, okay? The need and longing for uh, community, to, the need for peace, all of those things, the need for um, even to have all your needs, your physical, tangible needs met, those are all legitimate needs, totally appropriate. But the temptation is to figure out how we can just meet our needs at all costs on our own. Rather than trusting, what we do is we turn to unhealthy coping patterns. And this, I believe, is one of the reasons why the church exists is as we're in relationship with one another and it comes to the surface and you gotta get to a deep level of relationship for this, but to the surface that there's some people who are lonely, we gather around them and we become their community, right? When somebody is in just disarray or chaos, we say, hey, it's okay for you to be in disarray and chaos. We're gonna hold and be your anchor for you, right? That the church exists in that profound way that is so significant. My hope 
is that we would develop relationships here to share that with each other and walk together. Second, our congregation is full of so many talented, capable people. We just are, right? Many of you have achieved in significant ways or you just carry a lot of talent with you where you go. It can be easy to trust that. When we do that, strength, our strength becomes our weakness. When we see that we're not succeeding in the way we wanna go, we kinda go, well, what's up, God? God's not present with this and it's so frustrating. And so we just push ourselves harder and harder in order to experience that fulfillment. Well, during Lent, I want to challenge you to embrace your limits, which for a lot of us is gonna feel like torture, right? To go, I can't do everything. I can't run myself hard enough in order to make everything fixed. I trust, you gotta trust we can't do it all. Your skills, your talent, your devotion, your character will never be enough on their own. We offer our brokenness to God and he makes something out of us. And then finally, the way of the cross always means laying down our dreams and desires and allowing God to fulfill them even in a way we never would have expected. Like Lucy, we are all ever so ready to jump out of the car and grab the gas pump to help, right? But this is his kingdom and it's not our kingdom. And even our good dreams are better in his hand. May we ruthlessly pursue trust in the one who is faithful even when we are unfaithful. May we trust in his nature to make beautiful things out of broken things. May we resist shame and offer all that we are to God. Amen.